on the streets of Laredo contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Like David said, he shot one time playing Russian roulette and then he said, this time I have a light bullet. It's going to kill you. So, and all of a sudden, they shot him. The four people that were murdered in this case were all taken to the outskirts of, of town. They were all executed in similar fashion by gunshot wound. And all of their bodies were left in, in, in relatively visible area to be found. But I was losing a grasp on something that was too violent to keep inside forever. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it, or looking at it, and I'm about to go crazy, literally. I'm about to go completely flywheel loose and just fall apart. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? No. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. Given the recent events around the Black Lives Matter movement and the overwhelming coverage on police brutality, we will go into depth on a case that happened in Dallas, Texas in the early 70s one of which has not only sparked protests and riots similar to those that are happening today, but brought upon dramatic reform towards the Dallas Police Department and shocked the minority community all over the city. To those who remember the case, this is known to be one, if not the worst police shooting to ever happen in the history of the city of Dallas. Some to this day still remember seeing officers being injured within the sea of people who have marched down the roads of downtown Dallas all while the sound of shattering glass filled the streets. Even the stench of burning rubber still lingers in the air for those who remember the fires. Even though this incident may have happened almost 50 years ago, it is one of the many cruel moments people remember when it came to police brutality in the city of Dallas. The family would only ask that when the people of Dallas, and for anyone who listens to this story, to hear the name Santos Rodriguez and to think not of the unwanted violence that became associated with his name. But to think of the real Santos Rodriguez, a gentle and well-liked 12-year-old boy who had his life tragically taken from him. This is episode three of On the Streets of Laredo, a Texas true crime podcast. This is the shooting of Santos Rodriguez.
Laffer 51 is a photo and video duo based in Laredo and that travel all over the great state that is Texas, shooting anniversary photos, couple photos, modern weddings, and elopements. To check out their portfolio, visit their website at laffer51.co. That's lab451.co. On their website, you can go to their contact page and fill out the form with all the necessary information needed to get your wedding and or elopement booked for 2021 and even 2022. Okay, back to the show. It hit me so hard. It was it was like it had happened to, to one of my sons. Santos Rodriguez was born on November 7th, 1960 and was the child of Bessie Garcia and David Rodriguez. Santos and his brother, David, lived with their adoptive grandfather, 84-year-old Carlos Mignes, in the Little Mexico neighborhood of Dallas. This was because their mother was serving a five-year sentence in Huntsville State Prison after being convicted for killing their 62-year-old boyfriend, Leonard Brown. And in learning that his mother was in prison, and people say, well, what do you expect from a kid like that from the streets? His mother's in prison, nobody knows it, you know. People with that kind of attitude against their own people, those are not people that you ever want to trust, okay? But then I started asking questions and researching and saying, why is his mother in prison? Why was he living with his grandfather? You know, what's there's a story there. What is a story? She was in prison, Bessie. She's a friend of mine. I count her among my friends. She was in prison because she had killed her abusive ex-white police common-law husband because he was beating her up. And it was known by all the police officers where they lived that he was a wife beater and they were called out numerous times by the neighbors and it it just so happened that that last time she managed to get his gun away from him and shoot him. And she emptied the gun into him. And of course she was Mexican he was white, an ex-police officer, so she got convicted of murder and she was in prison. That's why David and Santos were with their grandfather. Santos and David had previous run-ins with the law over shoplifting and truancy. And Santos was described by his teachers as naive and easily influenced, deep thinking, gentle, and a fan of classical music. Santos was a student in William B. Travis Elementary School. Teachers would also report to Dallas Morning News that they, quote, kept feeling all along that something was going to happen to those boys, end quote. Santos played soccer at Pike Park, and his friends described how he played as a starter and could kick the soccer ball halfway down the field. Supervisors at the Pike Park Community Center where Santos played described him as someone who would be willing to volunteer and to help clean the park and the community center itself. Santos Rodriguez lived in a Little Mexico neighborhood, a historical Mexican-American neighborhood that was built in part due to the immigration patterns and segregation practices in Dallas. And none of the circumstances that they said in defense of Daryl Kane, the policeman, were uncommon. It might have been uncommon for white people, but when you're poor and you don't have very many clothes, you sleep in your clothes. And they said, well, they... They had just gotten home. They were hiding because they were still wearing their clothes. That's, that wasn't unusual. Mm-hmm. Poor people sleep in their clothes. You don't have pajamas. For some context as to what kind of system Dallas was running on, by the 1950s, 
Mexican-Americans and students of Hispanic and Latino origin could attend one of the four segregated elementary schools, William B. Travis, Cumberland Hills, Benito Juarez, and City Park. Crozier Tech High School was served as a segregated high school for the Mexican-American communities of Dallas as well. By 1970, Mexican-Americans made up around 8% of the city population, or around 40,000 people. While early Mexican-American organizations tried to assimilate into the Anglo-Dallas society, Mexican-American students still faced segregated schools that lacked resources compared to Anglo schools, as well as the struggle with systemic racism. The first Mexican-American city council member, Anita Martinez, was elected in 1969. This time period was also marked by the rise of the Chicano movement, which had begun its development in the mid-1960s with the grape strikes of California and developed into the national civil rights movement that we all know. The Greater Dallas Community Relations Commission we mentioned earlier, I had been on a task force, and then that, that's how come I wound up on the board. A task force the year before, a year and a half before Santos was, was murdered. Guzman and Lopez, I don't remember their their first names, but their last names were Guzman and Lopez, two Chicanos that lived in Ledbetter, my neighborhood. Deputy sheriffs had a warrant for their arrest, so they went to their known address to to arrest them. They, um, it's a long story, they ran out the back door in our lane. They chased them down, they caught them, they had them handcuffed. But back then, everybody knew that if you got arrested, you went by the Trinity River bottoms before you ever made it to the jail, and sometimes you didn't make it to the jail before you made it to Parkland Hospital. So Guzman and Lopez, there were five police officers that were shot, and Guzman and Lopez disappeared. With a system designed to segregate minorities, along with the rising tensions of the civil rights movement, these were trying times for many minorities in the United States, a very upsetting combination to the events to come. But in the process, they had violated a lot of people's rights because every tip they got, they wouldn't go and knock on the door. They'd go kick doors in. They would pull shotguns in front of children's faces and and, and elderly people and, and knock over furniture like they were looking for drugs. And it, I mean, they were, they were like crazy. And this happened all over the city. So the Community Relations Commission was getting complaints from all over from Mexican-American families about their homes being violated this way. No warrants, no nothing. Just kick the door in and go in. Because that was the life we were living back then in Dallas, Texas. Well, you don't have time to hear all the comments that we all made inside those closed doors when we finally finished that report. I had to threaten somebody with a press conference. As soon as I said, I'll walk out this door and I will call a press conference and tell them, you, you, and you whitewashed this report and I'll do a minority report. Mm-hmm. Okay, cabrones, you know? So anyway, um, then a year and a half later, Daryl Cain blows out Santos Rodriguez's brains. So what good did that report do a year and a half before? That was a Dallas police officer. The original one, the year and a half before, had been the, the county sheriff's department. And, and Chief Dyson swore up and down that his police department wasn't like that. On July 24, 1973, at 2.10 a.m. at the FINA gas station located on Cedar Springs, a burglary call was made. 
officers Daryl Lee Kane, a five-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department, and Roy Arnold, a three-year-old veteran, arrived at the scene of the burglary. Kane and Arnold reported to the FINA gas station after receiving information from the police dispatch that there was a robbery in progress and that the suspects had fled by the time the police arrived. However, a resident in the neighborhood reported that they had heard a gunshot from the area. Further investigation revealed that Kane and Arnold had witnessed two youths breaking and entering the FINA gas station and that Arnold had fired one shot towards the suspects in an attempt to warn them from fleeing. The suspects managed to run off and Arnold failed to report firing a warning shot. Arnold later on reported that he believed the suspects were David and Santos Rodriguez. Kane and Arnold went to the home where the Rodriguez brothers were living and took them into custody around 2.30 a.m. There was no warrant issued, but the officers claimed that they had received permission from their guardian, Carlos Mignes. Mignes reportedly spoke basic English, and there was no record that either officer spoke Spanish. So to be reporting that they had permission to walk in was very suspicious. David and Santos were handcuffed and put into Arnold's police car without being given time to change their clothes or put on shoes for that matter, and were taken to the gas station for an impromptu interrogation. The vehicle was parked in a vacant lot behind the gas station with Arnold in the driver's seat, Kane in the seat behind Arnold, Santos in the passenger seat, and David seated behind him. Arnold questioned the boys about the burglary, but neither would give a confession to committing the crime. Kane later testified that after the boys denied criminal involvement, he told Arnold that he would make the boys talk. Kane then took his 357 Magnum revolver and rattled the bullets in a way that the supposed removed bullets would make a noise as they hit together. The cold metal sound of the bullets struck fear into the boys in the car. Kane claimed he had visually checked the cylinder and did not see any bullets left in his gun. Either way, Kane still took his revolver and aimed it at Santos, threatening the boy to tell him the truth about the burglary. With Santos's breathing becoming heavy and heart racing, Santos refused to confess any guilt, and Kane pulled the trigger, clicking an empty chamber. Nothing but adrenaline and pure fear for his life was rushing through Santos's veins, tears streaming down the little boy's face as it fused with the mucus from his runny nose. It's hard not to think how someone would be under pressure of this exact situation, especially at such a young age, especially at gunpoint. Despite seeing the discomfort and fear in Santos's eyes, Kane again threatened to shoot Santos if he did not confess. And according to later testimony by Kane, Santos's last words were, quote, I am telling you the truth, end quote. But for a cop like Officer Kane, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Despite having the young boy handcuffed and his life threatened over $8 from a vending machine, Kane slowly pulled the trigger again. But this time, the spring mechanism hammers the metal firing pin onto the back end of the cartridge, igniting the small explosive charge in the primer. The bullet struck below Santos's left ear, penetrating his brain and causing his death instantly. A loud bang muffles the ears of everyone in the car, leaving a ringing noise to linger as they witness the gruesome scene. 
Kane and Arnold quickly exited the car, leaving David, who was still handcuffed and unable to exit the vehicle, alone with Santos's body. David told his brother, You're going to be alright. Don't worry. As Santos's warm blood began to seep onto David's feet, the smell of gunpowder and blood began to fill the car. David will be left in the vehicle with his brother for around 10 minutes before someone came back. Dallas Police Department officer Jerry Foster was also at the scene at the time of Santos's killing. Foster was on patrol when he responded to the police broadcast reporting the burglary at the gas station. He investigated the scene and found that the desk drawer was open in the station. A rear window was broken out and a cigarette machine had been pried open. Foster witnessed the arrival of Kane, Arnold, and the Rodriguez brothers in Arnold's car. Foster reported that he yelled out to Arnold that he had received information that a third individual was suspected in the burglary. Foster approached Arnold's car and laid his arm on the car door when he heard the shooting of Santos. Foster saw Santos's head slump over and saw the blood coming from Santos's head pour onto the bottom of the seat. Foster then heard Kane scream before quickly exiting the vehicle and stated, quote, My God, my God, what have I done? I didn't mean to do it. End quote. Arnold also left the vehicle and proceeded to vomit onto the pavement. Moments after Kane exited the vehicle, Foster took the gun from Kane, only to notice that five live rounds and one empty cartridge were in the gun. Officer David Rowe, who was also patrolling that morning, responded to the radio call about the boy being accidentally shot. When Roe arrived at the scene minutes after hearing the radio call and saw that both the Rodriguez brothers were still handcuffed in the police car with Santos in the front seat, it was only then when Santos's pulse was checked and an ambulance was called only to have Santos pronounced dead on arrival at Parkland Hospital. Kane was eventually convicted of the murder and sentenced to five years but was released after two and a half years only. And then five years later, after Santos was murdered, that was a statute of limitations on the civil rights violation. And somehow or another, the attorney <clears throat> missed the deadline to file the civil rights lawsuit. So I went to the trial, Daryl Kane's trial. They had a change of venue in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I listened to that testimony and uh, Daryl Kane's wife crying about how she wasn't going to have anybody to support them if he went to prison. Who the gives a damn? We're talking about blowing out the brains of a 12-year-old handcuffed behind his back. Why shouldn't he get castrated and hung in public? Okay. You, I mean, I had to sit there and listen to that because Mexicans didn't count. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what we're saying today. Mm -hmm. So what's different? Mm -hmm. Society's different, and this hate. People are being taught to hate. They're being taught to hate. And they use different words for it, but it's hate, and it's racism. Everything is relative. It's what you're used to and what you're exposed to, but... Hate is hate. Yeah. Racism is racism. It doesn't matter what you call it. Your behavior shows it out. In contrast, Roy Arnold was not charged in the Santos Rodriguez murder case, but was dismissed from the Dallas Police Department for failure to file a full report of the night of the shooting. As mentioned before, before Santos's death, Roy Arnold failed to report firing a warning shot 
at a suspect fleeing the gas station moments before going to Santos' neighborhood, indicating that the officer arrived at the robbery and witnessed the suspects as they fled, or worse, that Arnold fired upon a civilian in the area. Thus, questions arose during the investigation regarding whether or not Arnold had enough time to intervene in the Russian roulette interrogation held by Officer Kane, or whether Arnold could have acted to prevent Santos's death by mentioning that one piece of vital information. Some speculate that the reason that he was not charged in the Santos Rodriguez murder case was due to the fact that his father was a police sergeant at the time, while others think all of the blame was placed on Officer Kane as a scapegoat. And as suspected, this wasn't the first time for Officer Kane. He has been previously involved in the controversial death of 18-year-old Michael Moorhead in April 20th, 1970. As records go, around 3.10 a.m., Kane and another officer, Jeffrey L. Kirksey, were investigating a silent burglar alarm that had been set off at the Empire Bar and Grill on Mugner Avenue. They found Moorhead and the relative burglaring the restaurant. Moorhead and the relative fled the scene, but Moorhead was shot three times as he fled, leading to his death. In total, Kane had fired five shots and Kirksey fired eight. Moorhead's grandmother produced record statements from the witnesses claiming that Moorhead had been shot while he was on the ground and that he was begging for his life to the officer moments before his life was taken away. No charges were ever brought against Kane or Kirksey but they were moved to another patrol area in part due to public pressure and protests that followed that incident. Later that year, Kane shot and wounded a man in Dallas City Park. In doing so, Kane got a small reputation when it came to the media with articles from the Dallas Morning News stating, quote, Obviously, the public is horrified and sickened by the shootings. Remaining calm and letting justice take its course is imperative. End quote. Other local newspapers spread the word of Kane's actions like wildfire, with the headlines reading, Officer with gun holds awesome power. An excerpt from the piece stated that at the time of the shooting, the officer's life was not in danger, and that there was no reason for anything at all to ever have happened. Leave the Lights On is a true crime podcast with a paranormal twist. Join creator Eliza and her co-host as they explore terrifying true stories and chilling crimes. Growing up, Eliza had an odd obsession with the darkest desires of humanity and an insatiable curiosity about the afterlife. Now, each week, Eliza brings you tales that will make you want to lock your doors, hide in your room, and of course, leave the lights on. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. This is a very emotional issue. The killing of Santos Rodriguez galvanized our community. That's Albert Baltierra, president of the Dallas Mexican American Historical League. During the 1970s, the Latino community was just getting established, honing up to about 80,000 Latinos in Dallas. We were buying houses, we're getting good jobs, but there was still resistance from the powers that be, so we had to go out and claim the power for ourselves. It wasn't long until activists came together for the protest march to Dallas's old city hall after the death of Santos Rodriguez. It was called the March of Justice for Santos Rodriguez. So the whole notion that the police force, uh, the perception within the black community and, and Hispanic community was that it was an open season on blacks and Hispanics. And there was, so there was very, very uh, uh, serious cases of shootings and killings. 
uh, during that period. Well, the other key area has been basically law enforcement, criminal justice system. Uh, I also cut my I cut cut my teeth in in the Community Relations Commission dealing with the police issues. Uh, forget about education. In the early 70s, Dallas was a very volatile city as it related to uh, police and their treatment of Hispanics and especially African Americans. The march that took place was not just Hispanics. The march was African American and white and Hispanics marching downtown Dallas. 5,000 people in a hot July uh, summer afternoon. It was a Saturday afternoon, and the temperature was in the triple digits, as it usually is in Texas. Thousands of Mexican-Americans marched and shouted in Spanish, Justicia para el pueblo, or Justice for the People. The event was to be a peaceful march to show the solidarity of the Hispanic community and to protest what many felt was racial prejudice within the Dallas Police Department. The march down Main Street and onto City Hall was earnest, and the speeches at City Hall by Dallas activists and concerned civic leaders were impassioned calls to action. While the first crowd was listening to the speeches at City Hall, a second, perhaps later even a third group of protesters, assembled and began their own march to City Hall. So what began as a peaceful march turned violent. Kanan pled not guilty, claiming that he didn't know the gun was loaded and that the shooting of Santos Rodriguez was an accident. And our community is very, very upset over, over the transparency, the fact that he's been assigned to the barrio, assigned to our community. And of course, that he's killed one of our, one of our people. Why did a Dallas police officer point his pistol at a youngster's head? Why does 12-year-old Santos Rodriguez have to be dead? Those who took part of the protest remember watching rioters attacking the police, breaking windows, looting several downtown businesses, throwing bottles, and stomping on squad cars. But the most emblematic scene was the burning of the police motorcycles lying in the street just outside of City Hall. Police motorcycles were set afire, and several downtown shop windows were shattered. Boarded-up storefronts in downtown Dallas today were gaping reminders of yesterday's outbreak of violence and vandalism that left a trail of destruction up and down Main and Commerce Streets. The aftermath included five officers being injured and more than 30 people arrested. The riot was violent and passion-driven, but a major factor that pushed city leaders into action. This was really the first time that Mexican-Americans had organized to have such a protest. These were men that said, you know, we've had this tragedy, we're having protests, we've got to change. In the decades that followed the shooting, Mexican-Americans in Dallas grew from a small minority to more than a third of the city's population. They began to win seats in the city council and the school board. However, the biggest transformation was in the Dallas Police Department. Dallas was beginning to desegregate its schools as it integrated a newly formed police department. It eased the height and weight requirements that had shut down women and most minorities in the city of Dallas. Recruiters worked tirelessly to persuade a more diverse crowd to join the force. But there was still some convincing needed to be done for the families of those who wanted to join. For example, I'm Cynthia Villarreal. It wasn't until 1975 when Cynthia Villarreal became the first Latina to put on the Dallas police uniform. It wasn't very diverse. It was a white male, basically. When they found out I was applying here at Dallas, they said, oh, no, they, they don't like Hispanics there. They just killed a little boy. Or My grandfather thought there was all kinds of problems up here in Dallas. It took decades to improve the relationship between Latinos and the police. 
But today, almost half of the force are minorities. Some people try to see the silver lining in the shooting of Santos Rodriguez being what helped drive the transformation of the Dallas Police Department, while others wish that this movement for change could have been done without a gruesome catalyst. Regardless of what started this, in the end, change has always been for the better. Right as the riot began to explode and the crowd uh, started attacking police cars and motorcycles, uh, I saw uh, an elderly Hispanic woman coming up to a squad car. And I'd been out in the crowd trying to tell people to, to restrain from attacking people and restrain from breaking into, 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 into the stores and demons and tiges. And I saw this elderly Hispanic woman uh, walk up to a squad car that had been smashed. And she had a newspaper wrapped up in her hand and she started hitting the, uh, the squad car. And no one around her. And she just kept hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And I thought to myself, that woman has a lot of frustration, a lot of hatred, and uh, she's been through a lot. Not just that day, but probably throughout her life. And she's taken it out on a symbol. And that symbol, of course, is the police. So I knew that at that time, I had to leave downtown because the, the, the ride was out of hand and the police had to come in. I'll do it for episode three of On the Streets of Laredo, a Texas true crime podcast. I do apologize for having this episode a little bit late, but you know what? In the end, it came out and hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Leave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. That really helps us out, basically push this show out there for everyone else. And also listen to the other podcasts that we have here in the network, such as Hindsight 2020, Nosy, as well as Aliens on the Border podcast. If you like what you heard, share it to your friends. Tell them about them. Send it on an email if you have to at work. Whatever you got to do. Let your friends know about this podcast if you know they're going to love true crime. Specifically true crime in Texas. And if they're wondering where it's located at, you can tell them it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. It's everywhere. Even on Anchor. It's everywhere. Until then, we'll see you in the next two weeks. And remember, lock your doors and stay safe.